those famous instructions were once given. I think we're all familiar with it, at least I hope so. But uh, stay on the floor. Wax on, wax off. Paint the fence or paint the house. Do you remember? Okay. Yeah, if you know Mr. Miyagi, you know that these were not just domesticated demands and direct opposition to child labor laws. Um, this was actually a masterful teacher giving instructions. And um, these wise teachings um, for the student were something that ultimately proved to be something so much more than what they sounded like on the surface. That he was teaching them how to defend himself. Um, uh, this, it's just amazing how uh, that can happen. That great teachers will often do this. That you'll think that it's one thing, but it's actually something so much more profound. Um, they often do this, but as Jesus would often say, do you have ears to hear? Do you have ears to hear? And so we launch into a new sermon series on the parables of Matthew today. And so if you will turn in your copy of scripture to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, we'll begin at the start of the chapter, verse 1. Going through some of the parables of Jesus as Matthew has recorded them for us. Matthew chapter 13, starting in the first verse, reads, On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down while the whole crowd stood on the shore. So Jesus, at this point in his ministry, um, that took place as a public ministry for roughly three years, but at this point, a lot of people know who he is. A lot of people have heard of the miraculous things that he has done, the power and authority behind his teachings, all these things. And so a massive crowd has come. Um, This is just on the coattails of him being inside of a home and uh, some people showing up namely his relatives. And uh, there's, there's all this weirdness happening, but um, now we move on, and Jesus leaves the house. A massive crowd comes, and this, um, this represents a challenge. How will this whole crowd hear him? And how will he be able to do anything other than just be overwhelmed by the crowd? And so he gets into a boat on the ocean, and so the crowd can gather on the shore, and the natural acoustics of him being on the water will help the whole crowd to hear. And so now in this moment natural acoustics, the practical need, big crowd, big opportunity, what will Jesus say? One of these rare moments in this gospel where Jesus seems to have a massive crowd gathered around, what will he say while they can hear? Verse three. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground and produced fruit, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty times what was sown. Let anyone who has ears listen. Are you listening? Wax on, wax off. Perhaps Jesus is saying something more than just some obvious observations about how agriculture works. What is he saying? Look at verse 10. Then the disciples came up and asked him, why are you speaking to them in parables? He answered, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has, more will be given to him and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. That is why I speak to them in parables, because looking they do not see, and hearing they do not listen or understand. 
Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, you will listen and listen, but never understand. You will look and look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn back, and I would heal them. Blessed are your eyes because they do see, and your ears because they do hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see the things you see, but didn't see them, to hear the things you hear, but didn't hear them. So Jesus, why not just explicitly say what you mean? What is with the cryptic storytelling? And how does he respond? Well, it's actually not for everyone. That's pretty exclusive. That seems a bit offensive, Jesus. What do you mean? He says, I teach in this way because it's not actually meant for all of you. It's meant for some of you. And blessed are you who can hear. Huh. They come and they ask him in the first place, Jesus, why, why are you speaking to them in parables? And um, parable is, is a term that, that we hear often, but I don't know that we all know, um, in fact, what it means. Uh, actually, scholars regularly debate, what is a parable? Um, it's not quite as cut and dry as we'd like it to be, um, but I like to capture at least the gist of it. I, I like the definition that scholar Craig Blomberg provides. He says, a concise definition of a parable is that it is a short metaphorical narrative. With or without an explicit comparison, it highlights aspects of the kingdom of God. It presents a series of events involving a small number of characters, people, animals, plants, even inanimate objects, most of which seem realistic in Jesus' world. At least one element in most parables, however, pushes the boundaries of plausibility. Along with their context in the Gospels, this quality reveals that they are fictional works designed to disclose spiritual truths. So if I can take that very fancy definition and make it much more succinct and Kevin-like for you, um, parables are short stories that il illustrate a spiritual truth. So as we go through these parables of Jesus, and as you study, as you encounter the parables of Jesus, uh, we can get into a lot of danger when we try to read way more into them than what is there. Um, we can over-allegorize them, and yet we can also under-allegorize them. But what a parable is, is you need to read it in context and understand what is the point that Jesus is trying to make, because it is a short story that is illustrating some spiritual truth. It may be more than one truth. Often it is one, but sometimes there are multiple truths in there. But as we see that this is what a parable is, we must realize this is actually one of Jesus' favorite ways of teaching. If you love Jesus and you happen to live a couple thousand years ago and were able to come across Jesus in person, you're like, I want to apprentice under you. I want to follow you. You are my rabbi. You're my teacher. You're my Lord. You know what he would most likely do with you all the time? Answer your questions with questions and then tell weird stories. And you're like, just say what you mean. <laughs> like, there's a reason when they finally get to the end, as he's being trumped up, all these charges, like, it's amazing. Now you're speaking clearly. Because there's been so much tension in the build-up to that, where he's like, what is this guy saying? But Jesus is telling them, I speak in parables because it's not for all of you. Some of you will have ears to hear and eyes to see, but not all of you. And so he teaches us a spiritual truth and a parable. So what is it with the sowing of seed and the, and the different ground types and this, this agricultural thing? What, what was that about? You say that's for me, but like, as a disciple, what, what did you mean by that? And thankfully, Jesus is very gracious, and he tells them. So keep reading verse 18. So listen to the parable of the sower. 
When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. And the one sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. But he has no root and is short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on the good ground, this is the one who hears and understands the word, who does produce fruit and yields some 100, some 60, some 30 times what was sown. Jesus interprets the parable for his disciples. Which kind of leaves us with a question, but could, could they hear? Could they see? Well, now Jesus is telling them what he meant by this, which is actually very telling of his whole argument of who can hear and who will see. Spoiler, Jesus will disclose this. He is the full revelation of God. But as we get to that, you need to know what is the gist of this parable? Jesus is saying, okay, there are some corresponding things here, some elements of this. And so the seed that is sown, it's generous. You know, it's like probably not a great farmer. It doesn't seem like it. Like what farmer takes valuable seed and just starts throwing it everywhere? Like walking along like sidewalk, throw some seed on that sidewalk. Oh, rocky soil that I know, throw it there. Like thorn bush, throw some seed on that. Good ground. Oh yeah, some seed for you too. Like what is this? That the seed is just sown everywhere. What is the seed? It says it's the word of God. The seed that is sown is the word of God and those who hear it are going to respond differently. They're going to respond differently to what they hear from the word of God, but they're also going to respond differently to it over the course of different times. This is odd. And yet we know this to be so true. And so as you see the different responses of the different ground types, we should desire to be like the good ground. We want to receive the word of God and we want to grow and bear fruit. Everyone who has been called by my name, whom I created for my glory, I am the vine, you are the branches apartment for me, you can do nothing. What? What are we to do? What do we exist for? We exist for the glory of God. We exist to produce good fruit. We're supposed to show the world by our good works that God in heaven is glorious and he has come, he is gracious. Yes, it's a broken world, but there's a gracious God. He's our greatest treasure. When we live in light of that, we produce good fruit. We prove to be good ground. We should want to be good ground. And so as we're kind of eyeing this up, like what kind of ground am I? I want to be good ground. I want to be good ground. But isn't that the tension? What's your hope for bearing good fruit? It's being good ground. And here's the thing. Sidewalk. Thorn bush. Shallow, rocky soil. Good ground. Whatever soil type you are. Does any type of ground have a say in what kind of ground it is? No. The path can't just decide, I want to be good ground. The rocky soil can't just decide, I wish this was just a whole bunch of rich loam, like, oh man, fill me with nitrites. There's rocks here. And that ground can do nothing to get rid of those rocks. So what hope is there? If Jesus says you're all like different kinds of ground, what is the hope be a different type of ground. It's the gospel. This is the good news. This is the gospel that you cannot do it, but God can. That you cannot change your circumstances. You cannot change your spiritual state because you were dead in sin, born that way. 
God can bring you to life. God can change the type of ground that we are. That the gospel is we could do nothing to earn our salvation. We could do nothing to change our state. We are dead in our sin. We are the enemy of God and rightly facing the wrath of God. Just consequence for sin is death. It is physical death, but it is also spiritual death to be separated from God who is life, and that is for eternity. We want everlasting life. We want to be with God for all of eternity. But the consequence or the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That the gospel, the good news is, when you could do nothing to earn your way into God's favor and grace, he says, I love you. That you don't deserve this but I love you. And so God comes to make a way when there was no way that we could manufacture on our own. He is the way. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who comes to us and says, it doesn't have to be this way. Uh, In fancy theological terms, this is called regeneration, that the spirit of God actually comes and gives us a new heart. In the words of Ezekiel, the prophet, he takes away this heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. A heart of stone cannot feel. It is cold, it is dead, it feels nothing but heart of flesh suddenly feels and responds and sees the beauty, the grandeur of God and chooses to follow him. Jesus is called the word who became flesh. That's a famous Christmas passage. If you, if you followed along with our reading guide and the, the guided prayers and the Christmas gift a couple weeks ago, it started with that. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus is the word of God come to us, having become flesh. That Jesus came from heaven to earth to change things, to redeem us, to rescue us. And this is how the prophet Isaiah, uh, God spoke through him. In Isaiah 55, uh, starting in verse 10, it'll be on the screen as well. It says, For just as rain and snow fall from heaven, they do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat. All this language of what Jesus is saying. Seed, growth, fruit. So my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. The word of God from heaven comes to earth and accomplishes what God intends it to do. And the word became flesh. God the Son, Jesus Christ, became a man. He came from heaven to earth to accomplish the will of the Father. You will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided. The mountains and the hills will break into singing before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, a cypress will come up and instead of the briar, a myrtle will come up. This will stand as a monument for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be destroyed. Do you see the beauty of that? That Jesus, the word became flesh, the word from heaven comes, rains down and accomplishes what God intends it to do, that Jesus came down and he changed things. And so you follow in this metaphor that instead of the thorn bush, a cypress will come up. I don't know if any of you are into horticulture. Um, I might not even be using the right word there. I don't know. But like plants. And you can graft different plants in and combine them, all these different ways of creating new trees. Like it freaks me out when you go to Lowe's or Home Depot or whatever and you're like, how does that tree have all kinds of different fruit on it? That's not natural. I don't know if we should eat that. Like, that's weird. But like, there, there's amazing things you can do to graft in different types of trees and so forth. But you know what you cannot do? You cannot take a thorn bush and say, thorn bush, I'm going to turn you into a cypress tree. This majestic, towering tree anchored in the water when the soil is soft, and yet it stands majestically 
It's beautiful. And you cut it down, and it's wood makes this beautiful piece of furniture. You don't get that from a thorn bush. You don't look at the briar and say, man, I don't really want that briar in my yard anymore. Briar, could you just become a myrtle, a really pretty myrtle? I love a myrtle tree here. It can't do it. And the best farmers in the world can't accomplish that. And yet God says, this is what my word does. It comes and it can make a true organic change. It can change things on a level that you cannot change. To the word of God, Jesus, the word became flesh. He came and he has changed things. So what is our hope if we're being good ground? It's to cling to the gospel. It's to cling to God himself, the one who can change things that we cannot change. It's to look to him. He is our hope. He is how we can bear fruit. Trust in the salvation that God alone can provide. Trust in the gospel, the good news that God the Son came and took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, and then he died the death that you and I deserve. And having died, he put to death death itself because he was raised victorious over it in sin. He was resurrected on the third day and he's alive forevermore and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's coming back one day. And we long for that because he's going to finish what he began. That is our hope, that we would repent, we would turn from our sin, confessing to be sinners and confessing him to be a Lord who is mighty to save, trusting in his salvation, believing in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and the promise of scriptures, you shall be saved. This is evidence that now you live a life of fruit because a change took place inside of you, that God has given you a new heart. It's fertile soil. He's cultivating it and he's growing something beautiful in it. So let it be in your life. Prove to be good ground. I, I pastorally just want to push you as hard as I can. Say we, uh, it's, it's year five. Like today we celebrate five years of God's faithfulness. That's so exciting and encouraging. And, and as, as I reflect and our elders, when we were on a retreat this past fall, I'm talking about, okay, where are we at as a church and what is the great need? Uh, not to say we have everything by way of truth figured out. Uh, we are still constantly learning. But as a church, we highly value truth. And that's good and right. But truth without action or faith without deeds is nothing. So we must step into not just orthodoxy, but orthopraxy, the practice, the, the outflow of our faith, that we live for the kingdom of God, that we are a people who are about bearing fruit, doing good works for the glory of God. And so we engage in places that can be hard. We step into missions. We step into justice. We step into mercy. We step into evangelism with even our very own neighbors. That we must produce fruit. When we produce fruit, you prove to be good ground. You prove that God has actually changed your heart. And it's not by way of earning salvation. It's just proof of your salvation. We must prove to be good ground. And what makes good ground? Class, as we follow it along, the word that comes from heaven to us. Namely, Jesus Christ, but also his word that you should not separate ever. That the word of God is so vital for us. If we're going to prove to be good ground, like Paul, Peter says this, that yearn for the pure spiritual milk of the word, for by it you grow unto salvation. This is how you grow unto salvation. This is how you prove to be good ground. Be people of the word. Um, it's a new year and it's a new month. And so the rhythms of our church are that every month we highlight a different discipline that Jesus modeled for us. January is Bible intake. 
Just reading the Bible, listening to the Bible, hearing about the Bible, just being saturated with the word of God. And so as we step into that, I would ask you, put that lens on. See it in that way. This is shaping me. This is forming me. When so many other things are forming me, may I be formed by the word of God above all else and thereby prove to be good ground and see fruit come from my life. And as we do that, um, doing that in isolation is really hard. You are never alone because the Lord is with you, Christian. And yet, one of the most beautiful gifts that the Lord has given us is each other, the church. And so every year in January, we ask for everyone to step into what we call our discipline practicing partnerships, that we highlight a different discipline every month. And what we want you to do, you're going to receive a card and there's some information on the back that you can fill out. And basically, you're just going to exchange this. We want everyone to find at least one or two other people that you can say, hey, at least once a week, we can chat. We can chat about the discipline of the month for some accountability, for some encouragement, for whatever it is to just grow together in our apprenticeship under Jesus to say, I'm committed to this and I'm committed to you. And so let's get together. And the most busy person, I am fully convinced, the most busy person in our church, I could call you and just say, I know that your schedule is insane, but man, I'm just asking, can I get 30 minutes at some point this week? It's like while you're driving to your next job site, if it's walking down the trail while you exercise, if it's meeting in a coffee shop, if it's just a bunch of texts back and forth that accumulate over the course of the week to be, hey, there's our 30 minutes, whatever it is, but can you find someone? I want to ask you, find someone and say, I'm committed to this for this year. Let's get together in some form or fashion for 30 minutes a week and practice or talk about the discipline of the month. Start reading together. It's January, you're probably getting all the notifications of like, start your annual Bible reading plan, or like, this one's going to change your life, or this one's going to be so much, like all this stuff, and we've all done it. You get through a little bit, and then it's just overwhelming. I fell behind so far and all this stuff. I want to free you of that. I would encourage you to just slow down. Just slow down in Scripture. Because if you're just reading it for the sake of getting through a plan, that's not what it's about. It's about communing with God, hearing the voice of God as he speaks to us directly in scripture and letting that transfer us into a state of prayer and conversation with God. Be people of the word that are formed by the word. Prove that we are good ground. And Jesus is helping us to see that by actually teaching us what it is to see what is true in parables. That's largely what parables do is they help us to see I'm going to nerd out on you for a moment. Follow with me, okay? It's, it's a little bit lost in English, a lot more obvious in Greek. Um, but there's something that the, the Hebrew people love to use. Um, it's still a literary device today, but it's called a chiasm. And the idea is, um, it comes from Greek X, like it's symmetrical. And so the author would try to make a point, and he would build up to the climax of his point, And he would take the progression from here to the point he's making, and then he would work backwards and come back, but it would mirror the front half. And so at the center of the chiasm would be the most emphatic point being made. And 13 through 17 actually is a beautiful chiasm. Again, it's a little bit difficult for us to see it, but if you trace it back and you start in 13 and 17, and you look for the common words, and then you go back one piece at a time, moving in, they mirror each other until you get to the very middle. And the very middle is the most emphatic point that is trying to be made. Do you know what it is? 
they have shut their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes. When Jesus is explaining why he's speaking in parables, why he's teaching in parables, his emphatic point is, it's about seeing. It's about how you see things. So good ground. Do you want to be good ground? Well, how do you see things? What is your way of seeing life? What is your way of seeing the world? What is your way of seeing the entire story of what humanity is all going towards? How do you see? If they're trying to teach us a newer right way to see things, again, I would ask, can you see? Can you hear? Are you listening? Because I want you to see. Pastor Tim, last week, beautifully launched us out of 2023 into this next year, saying, like, we have to be people who see the hope of the future and how that hope of the future is a gift for today. And so we can endure suffering and all the stuff knowing that God is with us and for us, and we know where this is all leading. And so you guys know that I ride a scooter because I'm super cheap and want to save gas. I have a truck that gets terrible gas mileage, and so I have a scooter that was gifted to me. Um, it's been a solid year and a half of riding that thing. The batteries don't like me, and um, they really don't like cold weather, so we have kindred spirits in that. And so when it's cold, like, I have to kick up every hill, um, and it's still better than putting gas in the truck, I guess. Um, but where I live and my neighborhood, it touches the trail, and the only time that I have to go, like, on the road, other than just crossing the road at points on the trail to go from my house to the office downtown, is in my own neighborhood. Like, in my own neighborhood, there's not a trail. And I don't want to be mean and, like, ride on the sidewalk and people park there and all that stuff. So I, I ride on the road in, in my neighborhood. And so possibly the most dangerous part. It's proved to be the most dangerous part because the other day, I'm going up the hill. There's a pretty steep hill in my neighborhood. I'm going up the hill. It's cold. So mind you, failing scooter battery, I'm kicking my way up. So I'm not moving fast. I would love to think that it's super punk rock when I'm on my scooter, but it's not, and that's okay, maybe. Um, I'm full throttle, and I'm kicking. So I'm barely moving, coming up this hill, and this van crests the hill, and it's coming towards me, and I, like, I'm, there's only 100 houses in the loop. So like, I'm pretty familiar with vehicles at different houses and stuff. And I'm like, oh, that car, he's going there. I assume he sees me. I'm going, I'm going, and my, I'm not going fast at all. Scooting, scooting, and the car just starts to slowly come towards me, towards me, and I'm like, surely he sees me. He doesn't see me. And so it gets to the point, like, it's so slow that I realize, like, he's this close to me. I jump off and run, dragging the scooter to get out of his way. And the guy slams on the brakes, which is super dramatic when he's going all of three miles an hour. But he slams on the brakes, and I'm kind of out of the way, and I turn and look at him, and he starts just profusely apologizing. Like, he is so sorry but he doesn't speak very good English, and he just keeps saying, I'm just looking at home. I'm just looking at home. I'm just looking at home. And sometimes that's what we can do, is we can forget that we need to keep our eyes on things that are above. We need to keep our eyes on what is to come, and yet not forget that we're supposed to see that so that we can live today. That you can be so stuck on seeing home that you forget what is between you and home. Prove to be good ground. Fruit today. Today, not then, but today. Obedience today is mattering. It matters. You need to be obedient today. Don't treat God as something that is to be trifled with. He is a person and he is Lord. He is God of the cosmos. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no one who can stand against him. He loves you. But he's calling us into obedience. Obedience. 
We must hear, we must see, and we must obey. Prove to be good ground. Produce fruit. See the weight of eternity, but let the weight of eternity that is incomparable glory or hell define what today looks like for us. We have to see. And so consider what type of ground you are. What type of ground are you? I'm going to give you a visual reference to kind of break down this parable and what the different um, types of ground are. And I'd like you to just take a moment. And if you tune me out and you just read, that's okay, I guess. But some seed is sown on a path. The birds come and they eat it. It's just sitting on the surface, like it's on the sidewalk. Jesus says, this is the one who hears but has no understanding. And the evil one snatches it away. You know what the problem there is? It's nearsightedness. To not be able to see how the word of God is actually for now. And not just something that I can put off or whatever, like it's in the back of my mind, but like it's formative for today. It's nearsightedness. And so ask yourself, to what or to whom do I look to most often and most deeply? Am I easily distracted and desperate for distraction? Is your normal state of being that you would rather just scroll? That you don't have time to contemplate the deeper things of God? Or can you sit and be with Him and consider Him and enjoy Him? Or is your sight so myopic that you can't see? Or the rocky ground and it becomes sun-scorched. It dries up. It's rootless because it is shallow and the rocks are in the way. This is the one Jesus says that hears and receives but falls away due to distress or persecution. The problem, again, is nearsightedness. You can't see past the current circumstances, the pain of right now. And so we would ask, to what or to whom do I look to for comfort? Do I press into the Lord in pain or do I pull away? Or the thorns. Some seed is thrown amongst the thorns and it gets choked out. Jesus says, this is the one who hears, but fruit is choked out by worry and deception of wealth. The problem, again, is nearsightedness. To not be able to see beyond the immediate. To not be able to see beyond my own current discomfort. See, what do I want? And what creates anxiety for me? So to what or to whom do I look to for pleasure and joy? Do I trust in God's provision? Would rejoicing in gratitude or discontentment better describe my regular state of being? Or lastly, the one we should all be aiming for, proved to be good ground. Good ground is fruitful ground. It's the one who hears, understands, and then produces fruit. You're able to see. I behold and adore our King Jesus. I trust him. I find joy in him. I want to live for his kingdom. Which type of ground are you? The seed is generously sown. thrown it all over the place. And notice how for multiple types of recipients, it's not actually clear how this is ultimately going to go. Some of it looks really promising and falls away. On the heels of this, Jesus tells another parable. As he continues in verse 24, he presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to go and pull them up? The servants asked him. No, he said. 
When you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them, but collect the wheat in my barn. It isn't always outwardly clear or possible to separate out who is or who is not of the kingdom on this side of our Lord's returning. But you must know he is coming back. A day of judgment is certain. He's coming, and he will separate out who is and who is not of his kingdom. He interprets this. If you jump down to 36, it says, Then then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples approached him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He replied, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed, these are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. Then they will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. This is heavy. And it rightly should be. But you should consider, what kind of ground are you? And what will that day look like? I hope that you prove to be good ground. Be changed by God alone. Put your trust in God alone. And then live out of that in obedience, producing fruit. I wrestle so much with this passage for so many years. It's five years that we're celebrating this beloved church. The dream of planting beloved church came to me as a teenager. And I had a group of about 10 friends who we were committed to planting a church together. And it breaks my heart every time to think of those early years of dreaming. Because most, and I mean most, of that group of friends is no longer at all walking with the Lord. I don't know how to reconcile that for so long. But then you hear the words of Jesus telling a story as a warning. Some seed gets thrown on rocky ground. Birds come, Satan comes and just snatches it away. Some gets thrown on shallow ground full of rocks. And as soon as trouble comes up, the sun scorches it. Some's thrown among thorns. It's growing. But every time it tries to produce fruit, those thorns just choke it out. And then some falls on good ground. Your only hope of being good ground is God himself, the one who can change hearts. Put your trust in him. Prove to be good ground and produce fruit. Believe this good news. There's a God who loves you like that. I love you. And I so want to stand before Jesus, like Paul said, and present you fully mature in Christ. And to that end, we will continue to labor. I hope for many more than five more years. Will you share this good news? Fruit has seeds. Those seeds produce more plants that produce more fruit. Go and be obedient. Let's pray. The band will come. Father in heaven, I thank you that you would send your son because of your love for this world and he would come and live in humility and obedience and submit himself even to death on a cross. So he has the name that is above every other name. So Jesus, we magnify you, we exalt you, we love you, and we thank you. Spirit, we thank you for your presence, your work, and opening our eyes to see and our ears to hear. So in this room, would you change the soil type? Would you make everyone 
into good ground. Convict us of sin and righteousness. Lead us into the everlasting way through your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.